Welcome to the Christian Teaching Podcast. Welcome to lecture number five in our series on the text and transmission of Scripture. We've just come from a study that claims that the Old Testament is the Word of God. So in the last lecture, we gave ten reasons why we should believe that the Old Testament is directly from God, and we gave a number of reasons for that. But then you're going to come to these people that actually give you real issues and real difficulties that you must confront in the Old Testament, and you must have an answer for them. And so those fall into various categories and various types. But what we need to do is we need to be intelligent about the fact that these supposed difficulties do exist, and they are something that we need to deal with intelligently. They are not impossible to solve, and in fact, they are by the end of the difficulty solving, demonstrate the validity of scripture yet again. And so what I want to do for this lecture is just give you an introduction to what we are going to commit the next few lectures to, and that is looking at certain Bible difficulties. So we're going to look at Bible difficulties and higher criticism, and we are going to see certain attempts that are made at destroying the integrity of the biblical text. And that's going to be a problem if we believe that the Bible is the word of God. But when we look at these in depth and we actually examine the scholarship behind these things, and as we examine the claims, we will actually find that these Bible difficulties and these criticisms of the Bible are really from a worldview. That's that's the main issue. There is a fundamental worldview difference. When we look at the Bible from a, a believing worldview, there is no problem in assessing these things. They are things that we bow to God in, and they are things that we think about and process. But we do not throw away the Bible just because there is something on the surface that seems difficult. Let me give you a principle just before we look at Bible difficulties in their broad categories. Don't waste your time on nonsensical difficulties. There are many people who just wish to waste your time and bring up questions that are not even legitimate. We are called to make disciples. We are not called to win arguments. And so if we are called to make disciples, we are to be intelligent in assessing the people we are talking to. If people only want a good argument, if people are not willing to find the truth, if their worldview is challenged, then what are we doing? We need to work with people in the gospel for the purpose of the gospel only when they show the ability to receive the evidence we are proposing. Otherwise, if we present scholarship to people who simply want to show that they know more than us, then the conversation will be unprofitable. Also make sure that the Bible difficulty you are addressing is actually something that is legitimate. It's not just a ridiculous claim that you know on the top of your head is simply wrong. Uh, Make sure if you're going to investigate these things that they are things worth investigating and taking time with. The Christian's time is valuable, and so we should use it wisely. We're called to redeem the time. We're called to be good stewards of our time. So we have to make sure that these are real difficulties because we are humans, not because God is 
in the wrong. What I want to do then is just look at a few categories of Bible difficulties, and if we understand these categories and understand what's going on with them, we won't be intimidated by these long lists that you find on the internet of all of these difficulties in the Bible. Well, no, it's not just that easy to make an entire list and say that the Bible is wrong because, no, you need to understand what goes on in the Bible and factors that come up in that. So we're going to look at general categories of Bible difficulties to equip you to understand what could be going on if someone presents a difficulty to you that you do not have the answer ready for. And yet, if you understand the general categories, you probably have a good idea of what the answer could be. And that's a very, very valuable tool. So the first category that we're going to look at is difficulties between texts. So this will be the primary difficulty that we encounter from people, um, probably better called Bible contradictions. Um, We need to understand what goes on in these. Let's look at a couple areas that there could be a difficulty between certain texts of Scripture. Often a text of scripture will be solved when we compare translations of that passage. So translation issues are huge since we are not reading the direct Hebrew or Greek. Since we are not reading the original language, we are relying on someone's rendering of that language. And if we are using, say, a King James Bible that contains many archaic words, if we don't understand the original meaning of those archaic words, we may superimpose modern definitions of meaning on those archaic words and therefore come up with a fake difficulty in our minds that didn't actually exist in the original language. And so we need to be intelligent about comparing translations and just making sure what the text really says before we approach these areas. Another area that we have to face is the area of genealogies. Sometimes genealogies will contain uh, different names for someone who is the son of another person or whatever it might be. Let's understand how a Hebrew genealogy works. Number one, not all genealogies were meant to be complete. So if you find a genealogy, say, in another passage of scripture that is shorter than in the original place that it was mentioned, that may just be because a certain line is being traced, not an exhaustive genealogy. Secondly, the word father is not limited to the biological source of an individual. It can mean the ancestor of an individual. It can mean the grandfather of an individual. And so that is perfectly correspondent to what we find in many Old Testament passages. And that explains a lot of difficulties that are raised, and there aren't even that many in this category. Furthermore, when it comes to genealogies, there is a possibility, because it is a list, to have scribal errors creep in to certain texts. And so because men are fallible and because men can copy wrongly, there is a possibility in such a long and prolonged list that a name might have been misspelt or it might have been moved down or replaced or added because of a slip of the eye. And so there is a possibility of that as well. So genealogies are not a problem for the original text if we just understand how they work. 
Furthermore, there is the issue of New Testament quotations of the Old Testament. Someone might look at the New Testament and say that's not actually what the Old Testament says, and therefore they are misrepresenting the text. But this is actually not an issue for a couple of reasons. Number one, loose quotations are not inaccurate quotations. If they give the sense of the passage, and if they fulfill the purpose for which they were written, that is acceptable. And the apostles were inspired in their quotation of the Old Testament text, and so we need not challenge how they quoted, because often they did it for a very specific purpose. Furthermore, the text that the New Testament writers used was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so that will be different in some areas from our rendering of the Hebrew text when we compare those versions. And so we read from the Hebrew text in our English Old Testaments, whereas in the New Testament they were quoting the Greek text. So that's an issue to keep in mind. So when it comes to translation issues like this, we need to remember that the Word of God is the words, yes, but it is also the meaning of the words. And so even though we are using translations today, we are still using the word of God because it has come from God. It is God's breath. And we need to understand that languages simply have different ways of expressing the same thought. That is something we need to understand. It's the nature of languages. It is something that God has embedded into language. That's something we must respect. So when it comes to this idea of quotations, uh, we need not think that humans are robots. Humans have the ability of speech and of thought and of expressiveness, and often that comes out when quotes are given from one language into another. So these are not difficulties at all. Now we come to the difficulty of numbers. A couple examples that we might deal with later in future lectures would be how long was the famine uh, in David's day, referenced in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Or how many demon-possessed men were present when the Lord Jesus approached this man called Legion in Matthew 8 and in Luke 8? Or how many days were there between the transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Luke 19? Now again, we need to understand how numbers functioned. Especially in Hebrew, numbers were represented by letters and combinations of letters. They were not numerals as we think of them today. And so sometimes those could be either mistranslated or mistransmitted in the manuscripts, and that may account for certain numerical differences. But often numbers are omitted or emphasized according to an author's discretion, not showing an error, but showing a purpose in writing. So just because one gospel writer mentions that there are two demon-possessed men, and the other gospel writer seems to indicate that there was one demon-possessed man. That's not an error. It's just showing which person had the prominence, and it's just showing what purpose the story holds. So often a detailed look in these things show that there is a reason behind these differences in numbers, and there will usually be nuances in the specific text that justify its use of the number. So again, when it comes to these issues, let's remember, don't just give up when you see that there is a possible 
difficulty that arises in our minds because often as you examine these numbers, you find that God's word is actually accurate and that contributes to the precision of scripture and it actually strengthens your faith when you come out at the end, having figured out the solution to this issue. And I would actually commit to you the record of the transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Luke 9 as an example of how to solve these number difficulties. So one of them will say six days and one of them will say eight days. But notice the preposition that is used. I will just leave that with you as a sort of assignment just so you can see and try to figure out uh, how these number differences can work. There can also be a difference in factors between certain stories, uh, such as the order of events following the resurrection, or what was Christ's title on the cross, or who tempted David to do a census, etc. These are solved very simply. Since these usually come from parallel narratives, we just simply say that it is both narrative A and narrative B, rather than saying it is either narrative A or narrative B. It is a combination of what both texts are saying with attention to the details. Obviously, we would expect different narratives with different purposes to emphasize different factors. It doesn't mean they are contradicting. Now, it would be contradicting if those narratives flat out said, this is not true as expressed in another narrative, but they don't do that. They only give you more details, and those can easily be incorporated into the other narrative if we just say, okay, well then both of them are true. They're just emphasizing different parts of the story that the other person didn't emphasize. It's not a problem. And by the way, if these parallel narratives were word for word the same, wouldn't skeptics look at that and say, well, the Bible is boring. Why does it repeat itself so much? There's no color to it. So either way, a skeptic will find a way to judge the Bible, but we must realize that we approach the Bible on God's terms. And so these parallel accounts obviously need differences to them, just like witnesses in a court scene will always have different nuances to their testimony. It's not because their testimony is not true, but because they are looking at it from a certain perspective. And how you find the full picture is by combining the witness testimonies and by realizing that they saw it a certain way because they're looking at it from a certain angle. And that's not a problem. It's true, it's just being specific. The reality is, in these factor differences, if one assumes error, he will see error. But if one assumes God's authority, he will see design, and that's the key. Whenever you're dealing with Bible difficulties, always look for the design of the passage. When it comes to difficulties between themes, this will form our next category of difficulties. This is probably where a lot of the difficulties come in, just because the human mind cannot readily understand scripture unless he has at least a framework knowledge of what it is and what it claims. So what are some difficulties that could exist between certain themes of scripture? There are dispensational issues that we must understand. A dispensation is a 
time period, it is an age in which God deals with man in a certain way. So God deals with man in the garden differently than he dealt with man after the flood. And so when we look at the Old Testaments and New Testaments specifically, we will find differences in how God administered his justice or his mercy. These are not contradictions, rather they are showing this key idea of progressive revelation. God is revealing himself under different circumstances, for different purposes, to different peoples and different cultures. And it's not a contradiction, rather it is the multi-sidedness of God coming through in one glorious picture of who God is. And so it is no wonder that God deals with man differently in different ages, because God has the right to do this. We just need to understand the original setting and the original context of the place where God, say, commanded something or where God did something in a certain way. And when we understand that setting, these theme issues will disappear. Then we have doctrinal issues, and one example uh, would be, does God sleep or not? Because Psalm 121 says that the one who keeps Israel does not sleep. But in Matthew 4, we find the Lord Jesus sleeping, and it says that he is God. Well, this is just a very basic category error. Pure unveiled deity does not sleep. Deity as to its nature. God in his nature does not sleep. He does not rest. He is not unconscious. But God manifested in the flesh can sleep because he has taken on true humanity. And we dare not say that God cannot do this because God is infinite. So to put these texts against one another is an attempt to make the Bible contradict itself, but it's really based on an embarrassing misunderstanding of doctrine, and it's a category error at that. So doctrinal issues must be understood in their context and in good interpretive principles. And another example would be Romans 4 versus James chapter 2. Both of those are wonderful texts, and they don't contradict each other at all regarding justification by faith and vindication or justification by works. Uh, They're not contradicting at all. We just need to work with the texts and we will find the true meaning of them. And again, it will contribute to finding God's design in his book that he has written. Then we have what we could call directional issues, uh, commands that were given at a certain time. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I would rather that you don't marry, whereas in Hebrews 13, it says that the marriage bed undefiled is honorable and all. And so what do we do with something like this? On the one hand, and you'll find this on certain skeptical websites that say, oh, look, the Bible condemns marriage. Oh, look, the Bible condones marriage which is it? Well, the reality with this is that Paul said plainly that his commands were time-sensitive. They were circumstance-based. But the other texts that support marriage were based on timeless principles rooted in creation. And so the issue has to do with circumstance. And so when dealing with differences in commands, every factor must be considered. And if you want a practical way to do this, just get a sheet of paper and write the difficulty at the top of the paper and then draw a straight line down the middle and just write the factors of the texts that apparently oppose one another and you will find that those factors are not all the same. So wherever you find the different factor, there you will find the solution to the difficulty. They are given in 
in a certain context. That's the key when it comes to themes. Remember the context. Then we have difficulties in concepts, and we could call these not necessarily contradictions, but rather paradoxes. Paradoxes exist. Paradoxes exist, and we must understand this reality. A paradox is not a contradiction. A paradox is where the human mind cannot conform, cannot make sense of two ideas that apparently oppose. So the human mind cannot understand how the sovereignty of God and how the will of man works together. It is impossible for the human mind to understand that. So it is a paradox for us because we do not have the correct categories in which to think. Yet, maybe we will in heaven, I don't know. But the reality is that's based on our limitation, not because of a contradiction. The same thing with the two natures of Christ. I don't understand how that works, but I believe it because I give God that right to tell me what is true, even when the only person who understands it is him. Wouldn't God cease to be God if I knew everything that he did? So these paradoxes, these difficulties in concepts happen in the mind of the reader, not in the mind of God, and that's something we must remember. Then we have difficulties in social perception, and this is probably where the main difficulty lies when we are dealing with skeptics. These are difficulties that contradict social presuppositions, cultural norms that have been established against a Judeo-Christian background, let's say. So scripture deals with certain things as they were. Even though it often contains euphemisms and guarded language, it also is pretty explicit in some places. And so, when it comes to slavery, slaughter, or awkwardness, uh, these are things that the Bible addresses very plainly. So, let's look at a couple of these issues just to give you an idea of what exists. So, in our social perception today, we look at slavery as a cruel movement rooted in racism. But the reality is the slavery of the Bible was not formed based on the same principles of slavery that we fought against in, let's say, the Civil War. The slavery of Scripture was usually willful. Somebody could submit themselves to slavery. It was a class. It was a condition of working simply because not everybody could rise up in the hierarchy of society. The Bible doesn't exist to transform culture. The Bible doesn't exist to give us a political structure. It deals with men where they are that they might live godly where they are. So it's no wonder that the Bible doesn't overthrow the slavery that exists in the Old and New Testaments. What it does do is in the Old Testament, for instance, it was regulated and abuse was certainly not supported. And so it interacts with slavery as a social order, not as a subhuman existence. And in fact, it was an opportunity to illustrate the ultimate ownership under Christ and to suffer for his name if it was necessary. And you can find this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So again, the slavery of the Bible deals with the reality as it existed. And it doesn't try to give us a political paradigm, but rather a paradigm of godliness. Again, this is the nature of scripture. When it comes to the idea of slaughter, um, and when you read books like Joshua and the conquest of Canaan, uh, we need to understand a couple things about how that works. 
Let's remember, first of all, that when it comes to God's judgment on the nations, he withheld that for a long time. You will read in Genesis chapter 15, for instance, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God judged these nations when they were ready for judgment. He did not judge them based on injustice. Rather, he destroyed these nations and communities because they had rebelled against God and because they were pagan and idolatrous. He was long-suffering long before that. God was not just judging people at a random time. No, it was when their sin demanded judgment. God is very, very clear about that. So let's remember that God is not a God who delights in violence for its own sake. Rather, God is just, and he waits until the perfect time to administer his justice. Another thing we need to think about in terms of slaughter in the Old Testament is that the men and women were being judged and the fact that children were part of the slaughter was actually an ultimate act of preservation for these children. Think about it. The fact that they were not allowed to grow up in a pagan and idolatrous culture saved numberless children from living a life against God. And the Bible teaches that children who are ignorant of God, are rescued by him and are brought to heaven when they die. So the reality that God would allow these children to die with the slaughters uh, means that God was preserving them from rebellion and preserving them from rising up against the nation of Israel in antagonism for destroying their ancestors. And so there are multiple reasons why entire communities were wiped out. And it is very sobering, it is very solemn, but it is not unjust, and that's the thing we must remember. Then we come to the idea of awkwardness in scripture. A couple examples would be Genesis 38 and Ezekiel 23, which I won't go into detail about, but these passages, Genesis 38 being about Judah and Tamar, and Ezekiel 23 being about two harlots, essentially, uh, they deal with these things very explicitly and as a matter of fact. The Bible doesn't exist to present a false view of reality. It deals with reality as it is. And so that is why it is authoritative. The fact that it can speak explicitly and sometimes make us feel awkward as we read the text means it isn't guarding against anything. It doesn't have this agenda to present the truth in some skewed light. No, it claims this by giving us those awkward passages that this deals with reality and therefore it is authoritative in every aspect of life. Awkwardness is a sign of relevance. And so when we come to these passages, which by the way are very, very few, don't overrate this, uh, the fact that we come to these passages at times simply means that the Bible is relevant, that it is authoritative, that it deals with man where he is. So we need to deal with these. They're not immoral. They're not unjust for being in scripture. They aren't contradictions. And just because we feel a little bit awkward when we read these passages, it doesn't mean they are irrelevant. They are extremely relevant and they are explicit to be relevant for our spiritual living. Then we come to the final category in Bible difficulties, and that is difficulties in spiritual perception. These are difficulties that men find because of their unbelief. For instance, 
The cross doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind. In fact, it is called an offense. It is a stumbling block. It was a disgusting and totally gross thing to the Gentile mind, and it was an abominable thing to the Jewish mind, because a person being hung on a tree was under a curse. And so the cross was an absolute offense. It was an absolute stumbling block. It didn't make sense to the unbelieving mind of the first century, and it doesn't make sense today. And that's not because it's wrong, but because men do not have the Spirit of God. Another example is creation and the fact that man is made in God's image. That doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind unless he is honest with the design he sees in creation. Headship certainly doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind because man wants to be autonomous and wants to reverse the order of God. Judgment doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind. The sinfulness of sin doesn't make sense to the unbelieving mind. These realities are not wrong in themselves, but man simply refuses them and makes difficulties out of them because he wants to, because his heart is one of rebellion against God. So we must remember these categories, and especially this last category of spiritual perception, and remember that most difficulties can be solved by realizing that these people are handling scripture as unbelievers. They aren't concerned with legitimate, fair scholarship, but rather they have an agenda to reject this book that claims to be the authority of God. So then, what do we do when it comes to Bible difficulties? I'm going to give you 10 principles for dealing with Bible difficulties, just so you have a basis to start off on. Principle number one is be spiritual. Nothing substitutes for hours spent in the presence of God and in the study of his word. Nothing substitutes for loving God. Because when you love something, you defend something. And when you love something, you are convinced of its existence. And you are convinced of its necessity. And so when you defend a system, you have no problem giving it up if you find a couple difficulties. But the gospel... But God himself, we would not give this up because we love it. And if we are spiritual, that will help us in being conservative when we assess the different evidences that are presented for and against scripture. When we defend the faith, we must have faith to defend. So we must be spiritual and this will be our greatest tool. This will be one of our greatest tools when we are addressing unbelief in the world around us. Principle number two is be an able handler of the scriptures. Most difficulties result from ignorance, and if you simply have the upper hand being able to handle and interpret and explain scriptures, that's probably your number one tool right there. There's a quote by Charles Spurgeon in his lectures to my students that goes like this. He says, you know the old proverb, beware of the man of one book. He is a terrible antagonist. A man who has the Bible at his fingers' ends and in his heart's core is a champion in our Israel. You cannot compete with him. You may have an armory of weapons, but his scriptural knowledge will overcome you, for it is like a sword, like that of Goliath, of which David said, there is not like it. And he really hits the nail on the head with that quote by saying, listen, if you know your Bible... You will be the greatest defender of the faith that there is. You are not called to know all that there is to know, but you're called to know the book of God. 
So be an able handler of scripture and pour over its pages hour after hour after hour, understanding from Genesis to Revelation, understanding the main areas of theology, understanding what it claims and what it develops in its pages. That is where most difficulties will be solved if you simply know how to handle the text. So make very, very high goals for yourself in understanding the books of the Bible, in understanding the sections of the Bible, and the themes of the Bible. That brings us to principle number three, and that is learn to love the big picture. Everything fits in a framework in scripture, and if we love the overall plan of God, then it will be easier to understand the specifics in that plan. If we see those specifics as isolated realities that we cannot connect, then yes, we will have difficulties. But when we see the big picture, those will become beautiful contributions to that picture, and we will love them rather than abhor them. Number four is learn to struggle with a text and be strengthened as a result. The reality of Bible difficulties does not diminish the authority and the reliability of the Bibles. Rather, I think God has given us these difficulties as an opportunity to test our faith. It's it's as if he's asking us, are you willing to struggle with the text and spend hours in it to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that my word is true. So when we come to a difficulty, let's be willing to spend time with the thing. Let's struggle with the text. Let's allow it to have its true impact on our hearts. Let us pay attention to the fine details, to the precision of scripture. And when we find the difficulties resolved, let us remember to praise God for that. Because then we must not take that as simply Oh, I just solved the Bible difficulty. No, we take that as an example of God proving to us that his word is precise, accurate, and authoritative. We take it as an opportunity to strengthen our trust in scripture and strengthen our understanding of how to handle it. So let's be strengthened by struggling through the text. Let's be strengthened by going through scripture and understanding its concepts. Principle number five is be offensive as well as defensive. In other words, don't be a doormat. Don't let people walk over you. A Christian, even though he is meek, is not without a defense. People will question Christianity to no end. If we subject ourselves to that, we will accomplish nothing. We must learn to defend, yes, but Man in his unbelief will have no end to his questions. So what do we do? Do we just sit there on defensive mode the whole time? No. The gospel is an offensive thing. It attacks the wisdom of man. And in fact, in Jeremiah 23, God says, Is not my word like a fire? Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Man's wisdom cannot stand against God's. And so we must be faithful to expose and correct and reprove the inconsistencies of man's thinking. You can find that in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4. Very, very clear. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. So we must be offensive as well as defensive. Principle number six is we must learn to admit ignorance and then pursue the answer, if in fact we are ignorant about the answer. We will never have all knowledge. So if somebody supposedly shows you a Bible difficulty that you don't know how to answer right away, 
We can't fabricate an answer, that would be lying. We can't ignore it, and we can't say there is no answer. But let's just address it at a later point. There's nothing wrong with saying, listen, I haven't looked into that as much as I would have liked. Let me study that for a while, and I'll get back to you with an answer. And when you take time to be a friend to that person and say, listen, I'll take this seriously. I'm not the god of knowledge. I'm going to look at this, and I'm going to wrestle with it for a bit, but I want to give you an answer. People will appreciate that a lot more than just trying to give them an answer on the spot that really doesn't make sense. Principle number seven, learn to address Bible contradictions with, and by the way, contradictions should be in quotes, learn to address quote-unquote Bible contradictions with precision. In other words, make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure the texts are actually talking about the same thing. Be very thorough in looking into the issue. Often contradictions are simply oversights on the part of the reader. Number eight, Understand the multifaceted nature of Scripture. God did not design Scripture to be exhaustive in any in every one of its statements. Some statements address one part of an issue, while statements elsewhere address the other part of the issue. These are not contradictions, they are just emphases. Also, we would expect many sides to a theme in Scripture since it speaks of eternal and infinite themes. Why would we expect that they could be explained in simply one area? No, we need illustrations. We need multiple treatments of a theme so that our human minds can understand it. So if we see the multifaceted nature of Scripture, that will be help us immensely as we handle the themes of scripture. Number nine, we must understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, And this is more of a theological issue than a scholarly issue, though it crosses into both. But the Bible student will be hopelessly lost if he treats the Old Testament in the same way he treats the New Testament and vice versa. They are both the word of God, but they contribute to specific audiences, specific purposes, For instance, if we don't understand that the church, that the body of Christ was not revealed in the Old Testament, then we will be hopelessly confused in applying the Old Testament and understanding its promises. We must allow these testaments to speak for themselves and to understand how they function together in every part so that we can handle them accurately. Otherwise, we ourselves will create contradictions that don't exist at all. Number 10, learn to, exi- learn to assess the hearer, keeping in mind his darkened heart. The reality is man rejects God because of a moral dilemma rather than a scholarly dilemma. We have no right to assume that skepticism is objective, unbiased, and a lot of times even well thought through. Fallen man is blinded by Satan. He is unable to comprehend the things of God, and he is darkened in his intellect as a result of sin. There cannot be objectivity on his part, and we must be diligent to assess where his bias is. We cannot assume that they have the upper hand in being on neutral ground, because darkened hearts in rebellion against God cannot assess God neutrally. It's impossible except by the work of God's Spirit. So helping a person along in Bible difficulties cannot be separated from evangelism. We are called to 
see hearts changed and not only minds changed. We are called to see people brought into salvation and forgiveness of sins, not into subscribing to a worldview. The goal is not to win an argument. The goal is to see a rebel transformed by the power of Christ. We must be people, people. We must be people who love people, people who enjoy winning souls. And so we need to assess the hearer accurately, and we must respond accordingly. So what about the larger issue? What do we do about, let's say, unresolved issues at this point in our studies? Let's remember something. The proofs of Scripture are much more weighty than the accusations brought against it. So it is possible to admit ignorance about certain issues in Scripture while believing fully in Scripture because we have been persuaded by the stronger proofs, by the fact that these proofs are very strong and so they cannot be untrue, but this little issue that I currently have unresolved will not challenge my main belief in scripture. So, for instance, there was a time when the Hittites in scripture were doubted as to their existence, and people had no answer for that. There was no way to refute the scholarly objections, and yet the time came when the Hittites were discovered as being existent in the biblical time. And so, what happens for those people in ancient times before the Hittites were discovered? Well, If they disbelieved the Bible, they would have disbelieved it for a false reason. But if they gave scripture the benefit of the doubt in that sense and had their faith put in God, realizing that God will reveal it in his time, they would have been perfectly justified in doing that. So unresolved issues, we must understand, are not unresolvable issues but rather we must allow scripture to stand as God's word and we will allow God to reveal whatever unresolved difficulty there is in our minds at a later point. But we must understand the Bible has authenticated itself and we must bow to that. And by the way, let me just mention before we move into the next section that the existence of Bible difficulties actually proves the Christian worldview. It verifies that men are blind, as scripture predicted, and the contradictions aren't what we would expect them to be. They are always explainable, and they contribute to the precise nature of scripture. So Bible difficulties actually, if they are handled properly, will encourage us in our faith rather than discourage us. So let me just close this lecture by talking a little bit about higher criticism. Higher criticism is that area of biblical criticism that deals with the dating, authorship, and integrity of biblical texts. So this type of criticism has become equivalent to skepticism since challenges in these areas usually destroy the Christian message and come from an unbelieving or a liberal worldview. Now, there is what is called lower criticism, which is usually called textual criticism, and that is the study of biblical manuscripts uh, and comparison of them, which is totally fine. Uh, These aim to assure us of what the text originally said, and they don't discourage us 
in that way, but higher criticism is what we must be aware of. Higher criticism came out of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment when man realized that he actually had a mind that he could use and man grew to be self-aware and he was able to study history and ancient languages, philosophy and science, and those became the great pride and joy of Western civilization. And the printing press allowed research to be documented and published. And so as man grew in his wisdom, he also became more deistic. He saw God as being a transcendental reality rather than an imminent reality. He didn't see God as being interactive with his creation, but rather just, you know, he exists, but he doesn't really interact with us or care. And then obviously that grew into agnosticism, rationalism, and atheism, and evolutionism. And so this is all a development since the last few hundred years uh, that has really sprouted into this form of higher criticism that claims and destroys the idea or attempts to destroy the idea that the Bible is inspired and without error. So as man grew farther from God, he also grew farther from Scripture. And that manifests itself in a couple different forms. Let me just give them to you very, very briefly. We're going to look at these more as we assess specific areas of higher criticism in the next lecture, whether with Daniel, Isaiah, or the Pentateuch. Let me just give you a couple forms that higher criticism comes in to show you what they do with this. There is what is called redaction criticism, and redaction is a word for editing. A redactor is an editor, and so this kind of criticism investigates how and why the biblical writers compiled their sources into a single narrative. Then we have what is called tradition criticism, and this attempts to identify what traditions contributed to a certain biblical writer's worldview and thus framed his thoughts when writing. So this is very close to what we will discuss next, which is form criticism. Form criticism, or literary criticism, tries to identify uh, narrative units that existed orally before they were written in a biblical text. And so form criticism tries to assess how the cultural background of these oral narratives contributed to their final form as written texts. And so this relies very heavily on categorizing the Bible into various genres and then assessing their relationship to apparent past manifestations of those same ideas. Then we have what is called source criticism, and this investigates the sources used for biblical documents. This will become extremely relevant as we look at the Synoptic Gospels. And what happens here is is these critics see similarities between parallel narratives, and they ask themselves, oh, I wonder what source these narratives used and how they modified that source to create their final form. Then we have what is called historical criticism, and this assesses the historical setting of the text, and it also tries to assess the historical claims of the text and tries to assess whether it is historically viable. And so this is a huge area for unbelief to creep in as it, because history, if it is only validated by one biblical text, 
an unbeliever could very easily just say, well, that doesn't make sense. That that can't be true, for instance, because they don't believe in miracles. Their presuppositions make them deny that that one account is historically accurate. So historical criticism is a very, very great seedbed for unbelief. Then we also have what is called canonical criticism, and this assesses the function of certain biblical books in light of their original reception as scripture. Now I'm giving these to you so that you have a framework of what goes on in the higher academic institutions, and people are arguing about these very, very speculative studies that really have no solid conclusions and very, very big objections to them, and yet they spend their time looking at how the biblical writers apparently edited their material, or what traditions influenced them, or what sources they used, or if they were historically accurate or faulty. And so you can see how man has taken the Bible not as something from God, not as something that is authoritative and without error, but something that he can become the ultimate judge of and assess. And so we're going to look at a couple key attacks of higher criticism in the next lecture, but I just wanted you to be familiar with various forms that it manifests itself self in so that you can be aware of these terms. Let me give you a couple general problems with higher criticism and then we will close for today. One main problem of higher criticism is the presuppositional basis that it works on. It's a very presuppositional system. In other words, it works on preconceived notions. It works very much on assumptions. So a couple of those assumptions are anti-supernaturalism and moral autonomy. In other words, the Bible can't be true if it contradicts my human free will, and the Bible can't be true since it talks about miracles, since it talks about a God who is just. But the reality is, these are presuppositions established by a human mind. They are not neutral presuppositions. And so these people from the very beginning handle scripture with an unhealthy bias. I would argue that a monotheistic worldview is actually the most reasonable and most neutral worldview to work from, and yet these people don't see it that way. Um, instead, they say that naturalism is the most neutral worldview. But that's completely biased, and that is completely unfair, and so that is why higher criticism fails, because it has this anti-supernatural presupposition to it. But then we also have the idea of counter-scholarship that has been done by conservative scholars within Christianity. We're going to look at these studies a little bit more later on in coming lectures, but just remember that where there is a higher critic that has challenged the legitimacy of the Bible, there has been a Christian scholar who has not only appreciated the theology of Scripture, but he's willing to assess the claims of these higher critical scholars, and he is willing to refute them with better scholarship. So we aren't afraid of the history. We aren't afraid of the studies. And in fact, we've done these same studies and come to alternate conclusions. So higher criticism is not this fail-proof science. It is a very, very biased system, and counter-scholarship has done a thorough and an excellent job of absolutely debunking the claims of these higher critics. By the way, if higher criticism is true and it destroys the inerrancy and the inspiration of scripture, then Christ is also not true because Christ believed in a historical Old Testament and he authorized a historical New Testament. So if higher criticism is true, Christ is nothing.
So there are people who embrace liberalism and higher criticism, and they will say, well, I don't accept certain biblical narratives, but I think the main message is still there, that Christ rose from the dead, and that is the foundation of Christianity, not the Bible. And there are even modern, very popular Bible teachers who subscribe to that kind of dangerous thinking. Listen, Christianity is an entire system. Christianity works with the Bible, with the claims of Christ about the Bible, and if the Bible fails, so does Christianity. So if the Bible fails, then you have no Christianity, and you need to seek another alternative. But what else is there? Are we going to reject the existence of God? Well, that doesn't make sense because we clearly see design, so that's a bad alternative. Are we going to embrace polytheism? Well, that's based on much superstition. That wouldn't make sense either. Will we just embrace... I don't know, what do we embrace? We can't really embrace much that is reliable outside of Christianity. There's nothing that is solid and sure in this world, and everybody is looking for answers. So even if you destroy Christianity, you might as well subscribe to a wasteland of blindness because there is nothing out there that will give you 100% guaranteed answers. But... I'm going to qualify that because in light of our last podcast, these reasons for believing the Old Testament, for believing the Bible are solid and sure. And we do have a foundation for believing 100% of the afterlife, of the existence of God, of the efficiency, of the sufficiency of Christ and of all of his work to forgive our sins. Uh, Christianity is the only logical worldview that exists, the only way to live life. And when we look at the alternatives, they simply fail compared to what Christianity offers in terms of its historical reliability, but also in terms of its theological authenticity as well. So how can you brace yourself for higher criticism? Well, beware of many theological institutions because most of them have gone liberal, and that is because they function on an interdenominational student body, and because they glorify scholarship, obviously human wisdom will come first before God's wisdom. It takes a very humble institution to hold God's word as being supreme. Uh, There are a few conservative seminaries that exist, But remember, your Bible teaching does not depend on an institution. Your Bible teaching, A, comes from personal study, and B, from your local assembly. Invest in those. You'll be safe. Don't subscribe to these areas that will try to corrupt your thinking and make you come out more confused than when you went in. That is the reality of many seminaries today, and it's sad. Remember also that scholars are people too. Scholars don't have magical 100% sure answers just because they wrote a book or have a degree after their name, and so we can challenge their claims just like anybody else's claims. Let's not be intimidated by human recognition. Another thing we can do is read the Bible more than we read about the Bible. The Bible is a self-authenticating book, and when we believe it, it authorizes itself to us. It confirms itself to us. And so scholarship should complement our theology, not replace it. We must be faithful in handling scripture, and that will be our greatest resource for faith. Then also we must invest in believing scholarship because there are many, many good conservative Christian scholars that exist, and 
Yet they are not scholars, first of all. Rather, they are theologians first. They appreciate who God is first before they examine the facts. And it is that kind of scholarship that we must subscribe to. And in fact, that's better scholarship anyway. They handle the facts accurately. They give you the assessment of the facts. And there's nothing to fear. Obviously, we must always have our guard on, just with any scholarship. But Invest in the best of the best when it comes to these historical matters. Surround yourself with people who are conservative in their theology and thus will be conservative in their scholarship. Ultimately, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Scholarship is good and proper, But ultimately, we must not think that unbelieving scholars hold the standard. We are not called to be wise in this world. We are not called to deal with man on his own terms. We are called to preach the gospel. And in doing that, our scholarship and our studies complement the gospel. They are there to confirm the claims of passages like Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4, which say that it is a historical narrative and that it is reliable. But we do not use scholarship as a means of salvation. The Bible says that God has his own wisdom that he has given to us by revelation. So we must believe the book. We must live in the Bible. And it's really an extreme path either way. We are either fools in the world's eyes and wise in God's eyes, or we are wise in the world's eyes and we have nothing to do with God. It's, it's, it's a very clear dichotomy. So the option is clear. If we reject the Bible, then we must subscribe to man's wisdom. But the problem with that is man's wisdom is never consistent. He always changes his theories from generation to generation. And so we can either subscribe to this book that is changeless, or we can subscribe to the Bible and believe it and enjoy it and have an unchanging foundation for our lives. Let's go with scripture. Let's go with this book that has proven itself over the past 2,000 years, even 3,500 years for when the Pentateuch was written, and let's believe what God has validated to us. The Bible has answers. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is worth basing your life on and defending with your life. So let's defend this book. Let's be Bible believers, and let's engage in defending it, and yet Let's remember, we must do it on God's terms. Well, that's all for today. If you would like more resources like this, visit us on christianteaching.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Micah Hackett. God bless. God bless.